Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom Podcast, the place where moms just like you are empowered with all the knowledge, skills, and tools you need to discover, pursue, and fulfill your personal life mission while still putting motherhood first. Today, we're going to spend a few minutes, the next half hour or so, talking about first principles. And I have to say, I think I've totally overprepared and I have way too much information. So I'm going to try to be brief. Uh, perhaps if there's more interest, then we can let this bleed into yet another one. Next week, the plan is to do another one on on the concept of principles as they follow from natural from from natural law and first principles. We're also going to touch for just a minute on doctrine and how it relates to first principles. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm a blogger, speaker, author of The Mission Driven Life, founder of The Mission Driven Mom organization, which is a movement empowering mothers to discover their personal life mission and fulfill it for God while still putting motherhood first. I am someone who has been very passionate about natural law and principles for a long time. It means a whole lot to me. And I don't know why I got turned on to it, and I don't know why I think it's so awesome, but I just happen to think it's awesome. And so over the years, I've gleaned lots, found lots of resources and lots of good stuff. I'm going to touch on just a few in the next few minutes for you. The first thing I want to tell you, I'm going to talk about, just review natural law really quickly from this book. This is the Great Books of the Western World series. This has a whole history should probably do a series on education in America because um, that's a really, really important topic mom needs, moms need to know about. But for today, um, I just want to tell you, this is a great book set put together by some incredible minds, including Mortimer Adler, um, as a way to counteract the loss of true liberal classical education in America. So in the 20th century, they gathered some of the greatest books ever written, and they put together this in Topicon. And... It is a compilation of the 101 great ideas. And so as they looked through the great books that they collected, they discovered that there were about 100 topics that were consistently discussed by these great thinkers. And um, of course, law is one of those really important topics. And of course, in this section on law, when Adler gives the synopsis at the beginning, of course he begins with natural law. So this is number 46, this is law. And he starts out by talking about this concept of natural law. And I just want to, um, I just want to share this because it really coincides with what we talked about last week. And because it, this, this idea is consistent in history and with great thinkers, he says, the profound division between laws of nature and laws of human conduct thus seems to involve two points. The former may apply to all things, so laws that are just natural laws, scientific laws, like we talked about last time, apply to all things. The latter, the laws of human conduct, are addressed to man alone. And number two, the former being inviolable, state the necessities of behavior, and the latter, precisely because they are viable, simply uh, imply freedom in those to whom they are addressed. So again, this idea, like C.S. Lewis talked about, that there are natural laws, and a subset of those natural laws are the laws of human nature. In this case, he's calling them the laws of human conduct. And they cannot, uh, because humans are freedom, those are the laws that we have the freedom to break. Um, he says again down here, they differ only in 
that it is part of man's nature to be free and therefore able to disobey even the rules of his own nature. So these are the rules that we have the freedom to disobey. So then if you go in this great book set over to um, volume two, then principles, of course, is another concept that's talked about by all the great authors. And of course, when you go to this section on principles, then you get the concept of first principles, which follow principles, okay? And so he says, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about just principles, but he says, according to its Latin derivation and the equivalent root in Greek, principle means a beginning or a foundation. And so he's talking about how um, principles are general in their scope, their rules of action, there are moral principles and political principles, and how, uh, and this is, this is one of the things he says about first principles, if there are absolutely no first beginnings to which nothing else can be prior, they can legitimately be called first principles to distinguish them from principles which come first only in a certain respect. So I distinguished for you last week how there's natural law, the law of human nature, and then from that follows first principles, and that from that follows principles. And he says you can't really have principles unless they follow from first principles. And uh, that being the case, you have to define those first principles first and then from that flow, the principles that we each can learn and live. And first principles are intuitively known, which we're gonna talk about in just a minute. So that foundation kind of set, um, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about, um, this is, this is gonna be just kind of a little bit of a foundation of the uh, founding of American education, especially around the time of the revolution, well, leading up to the revolution and after the revolution for, for that first hundred years in America, what education looked like. So now we've all heard the comparison, well, probably most of us have heard the comparison between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, okay? They were happening almost at the same time. And when Thomas Jefferson was over in France after the American Revolution, he was really supporting that French Revolution, thinking it was a great idea, encouraging the French to do that. But there was a big, big, big core difference between those two revolutions, okay? And so there's two enlightenments that led up to those revolutions. One is the French Revolution, the French Enlightenment that you may or may not have heard of, and the other is the Scottish Enlightenment. Okay, so here we are, we're in early America, okay? And you've got the College of New Jersey, which is a huge hub where a lot of American education happens. And who's the principal mentor there? Of course, it's Witherspoon, okay? So Witherspoon is the mentor. He's training people like James Madison and many of the founders. And if he's not their mentor, they're reading the same works that Witherspoon is using. He's using the writings of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, okay? Thomas Reed is the predominant thinker, Hutchison as well. So the core differences here are their use of God, okay? So it says, Voltaire, if, 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 you were to, if you were to think about it in terms of, there's Reed in the Scottish Enlightenment and there's Voltaire in the French Enlightenment, okay? Reed is a pastor 
who believes, let me read this, um, the courses Witherspoon taught on moral philosophy reflect his conviction that the writings of the Scottish philosophers, that's Reed and Hutchinson, were in harmony with the scriptures and that the whole scripture is perfectly agreeable to sound philosophy. So this kind of ties into something that Locke said, and this was, um, this was something that James Madison believed. This was the core concept in early American thinking. And the reason this matters is because of the Gutenberg press. So we're in the 1400s, the press is created. Now we're into the 1700s, people have access to books. They can educate themselves. And of course, there were two great movements which caused people to have access to the Bible. So now they have Bibles in their own language and they can read them. And they're gonna interpret those Bibles in one way or another. And so the philosophers are now starting to think really deeply about, okay, well, we're supposed to read the scriptures and we're supposed to use our gift of reasoning from God and figure out what the scriptures mean for ourselves. We can't lean on the experts anymore. We can't have them tell us what we're supposed to think. And all through the Middle Ages, that was that was how things were done, right? There were only certain people that could, that could read, only certain people that had access to any kind of education, especially the Bible. And so now you've got 1600s, this is Locke, and then we've got 1700s. And this is kind of a key idea for them. The Holy Scripture is to me and always will be the constant guide of my ascent. And I will always hearken to it as containing the infallible truth relating to things of highest concernment. And I shall presently condemn or quit any opinion of mine as soon as I am shown that it is contrary to any revelation in the Holy Scripture. So these two movements in the 1700s really laid a foundation for where these two nations went, okay? the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And these men, these philosophers, these thinkers, and, and this is super important because sometimes his moms were, were kind of dis, feel disconnected from the thinkers of our day or even the thinkers of the past, but they really move society forward. They really have a lot of influence. And so they're laying the foundation for the way that the nation thinks about God and about, you know, the worldview that's put in place. And of course, that's why we work on that in the MTM Academy, especially in level three, talk about principles in level two, worldviews in level three, so that you can really get your mind around what this means. So I can't spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to read you. I, I remembered this quote this morning when I was putting some of the rest of this together, and I wanted to read you from Paul Johnson. He's talking about the American Revolution, and he says, Great events in history are determined by all kinds of factors, but the most important single one is always the quality of the people in charge. And never was this principle more convincingly demonstrated than in the struggle for American independence. And of course, we've been talking about this in the Facebook group as well, that a huge part of what we're about is becoming certain types of women and certain types of mothers so that we can pass on certain knowledge and insights to our children. And so our leadership in our homes makes all the difference because then we raise the leaders for tomorrow. And when they're principle centered, like our founding generation was, it makes all the difference to the future. Because what you have is three nations, really. You have America, you have England, and you have France. And in England, there's kind of this we want to walk both sides of the line. We want to say there's a God and kind of give him lip service and kind of use our reason, but we don't want to let the scriptures be, you know, the guide to our ascent, like Locke, like Locke was saying. 
And in France, there's just this out and out rejection of God and of scripture. You know, for Voltaire and the encyclopedists during the French Enlightenment, it was, well, man, we're smart. We can reason. We can figure it out. We don't need the scriptures at all. We don't need God at all. Um, it says they expressed, uh, Voltaire himself ex expressed unremitting hatred for Christianity and indeed for all religion. And the study of reason struck off a, a radically different path from that begun by the Reformation when the Bible was placed in the hands of the individual for interpretation. French Enlightenment glorified man's autonomous reason, totally unaided by divine revelation. They swept the scriptures aside, unaided by divine revelation. They swept the scriptures aside as mere superstition. The Enlightenment sowed the wind, and the French Revolution reaped the whirlwind. Okay. So this is the fundamental difference in the way our nations were founded. And it goes back to, I know we seem like we might be a little off track, but goes back to this idea of natural law and first principles and whether or not you adhere to that worldview and you accept that that's the case. And in fact, there's letters and there's sermons and writings back and forth, like especially between Reed and David Hume, and Reed's combating him and saying, no, 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 actually, there really are first principles. So what, what happens is Thomas Reed and Hutchinson and some others in Scotland form the school of common sense. That's what it's called. And the reason it's called that is because we have common sense to let us know what's right and wrong and what's real and not real. So what's happening to, with these other philosophers, and you see this today, I mean, you just totally see the ramifications of it a hundred years later, that they're taking reason and they're saying, okay, well, they're, they're playing all with it. In fact, let me find this, um, this quote by Reed. He says, he's combating these philosophers from ancient times all the way through David Hume, because they always exist. They're all through, they're all through history in the great books. He says, who therefore would wish that, wish that Zeno, founder of the Stoic philosophy in the third century, to prove that motion is impossible? Who maintains with Thomas Hobbes that there is no natural distinction between what is base and what is honorable? Who asserts with David Hume that no trust should be placed in the senses, memory, and testimony, or proof? And who can believe that this world had a beginning entirely without cause? So he's saying there are first principles that are so powerful that compel our ascent. And they are the foundation of our knowledge about ourselves, that there is a God, that he put this planet in place. And so he says, he says there's a, a right estimate of how, to, of how to arrive at truth. This is him. This is Reed. Certain first principles resembling most closely the common sense of man in which the rest lean with their whole weight. And these principles are so closely joined together that if the first principles are given, all the others must follow. Now I wanna, I wanna point something out here. This is really cool because this is common sense. This is the name of this tract that Thomas Paine wrote that George Washington said was the most powerful tract in propelling the nation towards revolution and creating freedom. It's named common sense for a reason. This term common sense meant something really powerful to the founding generation because they had studied the writings of the school of common sense. And this whole beginning of this tract here on the opening pages, you've got the terms principles, natural rights, 
the influence of reason and principles over here tied into happiness and tied into conscience because that's always that's just that's just what I'm always talking about in level one we're going to talk about that again about the connection between principles and happiness and conscience and how important that is and how it's all tied back into these first principles so this is what Thomas Reed said these are the basic tenets of his common sense philosophy here's some of the first principles he put forward the world exists as objective reality in space and time and is not just an idea in our minds or mere illusions and apparitions. And this is what thinkers have said forever and still continue to say. You find this in the philosophical works. I mean, what are one, who, one of the most read philosophers on college campuses is Nietzsche. And I don't have time to get into that. We're going to talk about that a little bit in level one. But it's so, so dangerous because he is one of these that uses reason to turn reason upside down, to turn common sense upside down and to try to convince people to believe what they intuitively know can't be true and real. Okay, another one. Everything that happens in nature must have a cause. Three, there is a right and wrong in human conduct. Four, man knows that God exists and that other men exist. Five, what a person remembers distinctly as happening to him in the past did indeed happen. Furthermore, these first principles are and always have been self-evident to mankind. Um, number six, that we have some degree of power over our own actions in the determination of our will. Seven, that the gift of, insofar as we have some power over our own wills, it is the gift of God and we are accountable to him for the way we use this power of our wills. He says, he goes on to say that the very first and most important principle, first principle of all is the knowledge men possess that God exists. Because this is, this is quoting him, absolutely necessary to our receiving any improvement by means of instruction and example. This knowledge, therefore, must be antecedent to reasoning and must therefore be a first principle. In fact, one of the things that C.S. Lewis um, often said when he you know, became an atheist and then came back to a belief in God is he said, you know, I, one of the things I had to admit to myself is that in being an atheist, I stood in opposition to almost all of mankind throughout humanity. I was telling, you know, 99% of all the people that have ever lived on the earth that I knew better than them. And I kind of had to admit that maybe there some, was something to this natural law thing and this first principles thing and that there is something written on our hearts by God and that we intuitively know those things to be true. Um, I just, oh, I have so much, <laughs> I have so much stuff. I can't, I can't even get into all of it. But I, I want to just mention this. Um, so cool. I pulled this up. These are some of the readings um, for, for level two that you get to read for yourself. It's going to be super fun. Um, but this is back in Plato's Republic. And I, I'll never forget the first time I read Plato's Republic because he gets to this. He's talking about laws and natural laws and all this kind of stuff. And it's really mind-blowing. But then he gets to this point in this in. It's near the end of book two, and he starts talking about God. And of course, I've if I've been told anything about philosophers or ancient thinkers, I've been told that predominantly they were atheists, or you know, that's just kind of the assumption that you're left with in a traditional school setting. And so I was blown away to find that not only did Plato believe in God, but he uses reason to distinguish what must be the true characteristics of God. So do you remember when I gave you, I put up this quote in the last day or two in the group. 
when Plato said, and shall we just cease careless, shall we just carelessly allow children to hear any casual tales which may be devised by casual persons and to receive into their minds ideas for the most part the very opposite of those which we should wish them to have when they are grown up? Okay, so what he's doing here is he's calling out Homer because Homer is a foundational work that kids study. And he's like, okay, we're, we have them reading Homer and there's all these gods and the gods do all these destructive things and we don't want kids to get the wrong idea about who God is. And so we have to make sure that what our children read is in harmony with the true nature of God so that they can have a true belief in the true and living God. Okay, so he says, God is always to be represented as he truly is, whatever, whatever be the sort of poetry, epic, lyric, or tragic in which the representation is given. And the other person replies, right, because it's Socratic method, right? So the whole thing's written in, ask a question, get an answer. It's that whole Socratic method. And so this is him going on. And is he not truly good? And must not we, we re be represented as such? Certainly. And is no good thing, and no good thing is harmful? No, indeed. And that which is not hurtful hurts not? Certainly not. And that which hurts not does no evil? No. And can that which does no evil be a cause of evil? Impossible. And is the good advantageous? Yes. And therefore the cause of well-being? Yes. It follows, therefore, that the good is not the cause of all, all things, but of the good only assuredly. So here's his conclusion for this first round about the nature of God. Then God, if he be good, is not the author of all things, as the many assert, but he is the cause of a few things only, and not of most things that occur to men. For few are the goods of human life, and many are the evils, and the good is to be attributed to God alone. Of the evils, the causes are to be sought elsewhere and not in him. And then he goes on to talk about, okay, let us then be one with our rules and principles concerning the gods, that God is not the author of all things, but of the good only. And he goes on, is he not one and the same, immutably fixed in his own proper image? And he goes on to give all these characteristics of what the nature of God must be if he really is going to be God. Which is so cool, because it, this idea, these characteristics of God are pretty uniform throughout world religions throughout history. And so what we find when we talk about first principles is that in conjunction with first principles are also some fundamental doctrines. So part of first principles is that, like Thomas Reed said, that there is a God, okay? And therefore we must look at what his true nature must be. And we must then do something about this knowledge that we come with about God and about who he is. And what you find then, as you follow this thinking logically through, and as you study about world religions, is that there are many tenets that are really similar in most major world religions. What you find is there's a belief in life after death, a belief in an all-knowing and all-powerful perfect God, a need of worshiping God, the concept of prayer and connecting to him and receiving some kind of revelation or direction from him. Fasting is almost a universal idea, some form of fasting. Caring for the poor, giving alms, doing charity. These are universal ideas, again, as Thomas Reed said, written by the finger of God on the heart of men. And you find them throughout the world and throughout history because they are first principles that we are born with, that we that we know intuitively to be true. There's a few others. 
I have a little list. Nothing exists without a cause. There is a right and wrong. This is also, not only do we have a core belief that there is a right and wrong, but also that we should choose right. We condemn people that don't choose right, that we should be held accountable for our choices. Universally across civilizations, there's consequences for people that do bad things. Ideas of fairness. You know, you, you know, your moms. <laughs> I mean, when your kids are really little, they start talking about how things aren't fair because they want things to be fair. They feel that things should be fair. And it's not because we sit them down and we say, okay, kids, there's this idea of fairness and I want to make sure you've got a strong handle on it and you know what it means. It's intuitive in their nature. The law of the harvest. Uh, all people should tell the truth. Those who have more should help those who help less. Respect for human life. These are all first principles that come as a package from God. And to me, they are a huge testament, testimony builder, faith builder of the reality of God and of the reality of his all-powerful, all-knowing way of being. And that then, of course, once you say there's a God and once you say there's first principles, then you can just get busy discovering those and living those. And that's what's so empowering about it. So what I want to distinguish most importantly today for you as we get into this discussion and go into principles next week is that first principles are intuitive. They don't, you can reason them out. You can help someone understand them and they just, they, yeah. You know, you can reason them out and, and people will assent. When they're honest in heart, they will assent um, that those things are by nature true. So let me get, let me read you this part so good. How to recognize first principles, okay? They are self-evident. They're no sooner understood than they're believed. They are the light of truth in itself and self-illuminating. You feel a light go on when you're exposed to a first principle and you feel enlightened. Another way of recognizing is, is that it compels our ascent. It's irresistible. So an example of this would be if we, uh, today, is the compelling force of the truth of our sense perception when we see an oncoming train while we're in a car on the tracks. We would not wait philosophically to see if our senses were telling us the truth, but we would be irresistibly drawn to get out of the train's way. You also can find universal assent and acceptance of these throughout civilizations and throughout history. And in level two, we have some Lewis readings that we're going to do that are going to that he shows that unity. It's super cool. And we can look for it ourselves. Um, and then they will harmonize with revelation. They will harmonize with scripture. That was a huge thing. They need no proof. They're self-evident. And this concept of self-evident is all throughout Thomas's reads and writings. In fact, it's in Locke as well, which were, and Blackstone, all three of those were read and studied by the founding generation a ton. And so this language was very common for them. When they wrote that in the declaration, it wasn't, it, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was eloquent, but it wasn't him like coming up with something wonderful and eloquent. It was what they really, how they really spoke, what they really studied, what they really knew and believed to be true. Um, and so that is how we understand principles themselves must often be tried. So somebody might say to you, well, you've got to save 10% in order to stay out of debt and in order to improve your financial situation. You might be skeptical. Now, what you're going to find, and that's what we find when we get into that deeper, is that those who have the fruits that we want 
and are teaching us how to get what they have, we'll have those, we'll find those, that uniformity of principles that are underneath those first principles. Self-reliance is a first principle. Of course, I should be self-reliant. Any normal thinking person agrees with that. But how I'm going to get there is not necessarily intuitive. So the search for us is in the principles. Finding those principles that help us get the results in certain areas of our lives that we want. So that's the distinction between those first principles and principles. I want to quickly touch on, this is awesome too. This is in 5,000 Year Leap. Um, this is Franklin's, of course, again, this is founding period. Um, I'll read these to you. But these are the fundamental points to be taught in the schools. These are first principles that children must know in order to generate freedom for future um, generations, okay? Number one, there exists a creator who made all things and mankind should recognize and worship him. Two, the creator has revealed a moral code of behavior for happy living which distinguishes right from wrong. Three, the creator holds mankind responsible for the way they treat each other. Four, all mankind live beyond this life. And five, in the next life, mankind are judged for their conduct in this one. So you can see that this uniformity across different writings and by different authors is really consistent in terms of what this nation was founded on, what these men were being taught, these truths um, about natural law and first principles that really harmonize with each other and help us to understand how to how to engage in clear thinking and how to lay a foundation for ourselves and for our families of clear thinking what to reason from well there's a law of human nature and there's first principles that are self-evident and then there are principles that we must then discover and live in order you know principles of government principles of health principles of relationships principles of finance and that's where we really can get excited and put in, do our homework and and dig deeper to discover what those what those principles are. I have this. Let me remember. Um, oh, maybe it's in here. I want to read you this last thing as we finish out from Aristotle in this principles section. Um, If I can, I took my sticker out. Okay, so here's what he says about first principles. Of first principles, Aristotle explains, we see some by induction, some by perception, and some by hab habituation. So by induction, we see the general truths. They're just there. By perception, we look around us and we can notice what those first principles are. And by habituation, the moral particulars. He goes on to say, anyone who is to listen intelligently to lecturers about what is noble and just, and generally about the subjects of political science, must have been brought up in good habits, for the fact is the starting point. If this is sufficiently plain to him, so if you have raised a child well, or if you have been properly raised, properly educated on first principles, and that's your starting point, you will he will not at at the start need reason as well for the man who has been well brought up has or can easily get the starting points. If we give our kids and ourselves that starting point of natural law and those key first principles, 
then they should be able to discern the other first principles and find the principles in their lives that will help lead them to greater liberty. And next week when we talk about principles, we're going to touch on those 12 characteristics of true principles to help us know and discern and talk about some definitions and give some examples of principles themselves. But that's kind of a really brief touch on first principles. I hope it's a little bit clearer to you. The reason that I mentioned that we were going to talk about doctrine as well, I think you can see that now on the other side of it, that religious doctrines are usually in harmony with first principles. They are kind of part of first principles. They are part of natural law. The doctrine in any given religion sets the stage for why we're doing what we're doing. Well, because we're responsible for our actions. Well, because we're going to live forever and be accountable for what we do. Well, because we have a soul that's eternal. Well, because God is perfect, because he's put natural law in place and we must obey it. Those are all our whys, and that's the doctrine that sets the the foundation for our lives and for our religious practices. Then the principles tell us um, how to do that and the applications tell us what to do. So that that's kind of the flow of how the doctrine fits into first principles and into natural law itself. We dig into this a tiny bit deeper in level one and then even deeper in level two. So you'll see those connections as you start going through the MDM Academy. If it was helpful for you and you feel like there's other people that would benefit from it, go ahead and tag them, share it in other groups or on your feed um, so that as many people as possible can understand this. It's, it's not available very many places. I don't know why it's a pet passion of mine, but it just happens to be. And, and it's, it's information that I feel like ultimately is so critical because it builds faith. It helps us to understand key ideas and concepts that were very clear to past generations and have been lost today and need to be restored in order for our thinking to be clear and in order for our path to be clear and to generate increasing freedom in the future. Thanks so much for joining me. To get your free copy of my ebook, The Mission Driven Life, visit themissiondrivenmom.com. And to dig deeper and become part of our community of mission-driven moms, Join us in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and check out the MDM Academy. See you next time.